Welcome to our Friday Torah study here at Kehillat Israel, and special welcome to all of those listening on the internet all around the world. We begin with our bracha for Torah study. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotah v'tivanu l'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, Spirit of the universe, who makes us holy through your commandments and calls us to engage with the words of Torah. So, um, we are going to look at Parshat Emor today. Uh, we're looking at, bless you. Um, it's bad out there, whatever's happening, it's bad, I'm telling you. Um, we're looking at the, uh, at chapter 23 of Emor. Our triennial division has us in both Kolonishama and on Hebkal. Uh, both have a starting in the middle of the calculation of the festivals, which is a little odd. I don't know why that is. So we're supposed to start at like 2322. But we'll recap just a little. 2322. Welcome back. Thank you. 727 in the hearts. What is it in the green? 735 in the Women's Torah Commentary. Um, so to recap, we are dealing with the uh, sacred times. These are uh, the times that the people, the calendar of sacred time. We read Emor a lot, because whenever we have the holidays, the Torah portion assigned to the holiday is usually the commandment to keep the holiday. So we, we read Emor actually a lot in the synagogue, a lot more than on the Shabbat it is assigned um, in the lectionary. So um, we get first uh, the idea of fixed times, Mo'adim, right? So seasons or times that are fixed, that are cyclical, and the first being, of course, what is the most important one? Shabbat. 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 Shabbat, the one that occurs most frequently for the rabbis, is the most important. Right? And Shabbat occurs the most frequently. It is the first of the sacred times and observances. And then we move through the calendar. And it says that in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, there's a Passover offering. Right? So that's where the calendar begins. The first month... The 14th day of that month is Passover. So a lot of us go, Blanche looked a little confused. Like, wait, what? No, you're right. <laughs> so clearly there is uh, represented two different understandings. There are represented two different understandings of the calendar, the lunar calendar in ancient Israel. One is that Pesach is the beginning of the year. Rebirth, spring, renewal, makes perfect sense to me. How Rosh Hashanah won, I'm not quite clear. Um, part of it is historical. You know, the temple's history. There's, there's lots of things that's in our Babylonian exile. And th there's other things that influence why the fall holidays become so focused uh, on and important. There's a Babylonian coronation festival in the fall. What do we do on Rosh Hashanah? What's the language we use all through Rosh Hashanah? It's king. king yeah. We crown God as king. This is not an accident. Right? So exposure to 
other traditions in the region, um, certainly influences which of these wins out as, as the beginning of the year. But clearly the one in Emor, the year begins, the sacred um, season, uh, the sacred observances in each of the seasons begins in spring. Having a March 21st birthday. <laughs> I completely resonate with this organization of time. So, um, But January 1st doesn't rank at all. Like, what is that even? What is that even? It's so random. It's like saying the day begins one second after midnight. Like, really? That, that makes, does, shouldn't it start, start with like... Six in the morning. Six in the morning, like with live, right? January, what is that? All right, so um, let's look at 23-22. In here, as we're talking about um, these sacred times and talking about bringing um, sacrifices and uh, all these kinds of things, we get this interesting insert here at verse 22. Somebody want to start there? And when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So as we're talking about these seasons, most of them are related to the harvest. Don't forget. Not just to bring your sacrifices. Not just to bring what part of your harvest you're supposed to bring. Make sure you harvest in a way that's in line with godliness. Make sure the whole business of harvest is in line with what it means to be related and in relationship to Yudhe Which means you, it's not kosher. You can't just bring what you're supposed to bring and be clear. If you've reaped all the way to the edges, you're already in violation. Right? Because what are the edges for? Poor, poor, the poor and the stranger. stranger who has no land and may not have an occupation yet. Right? That, that they have nowhere to acquire right food. It's interesting, it doesn't say harvest it and give it to them. No, it does not. You allow them to harvest it. Because on harvest day, when everybody's putting on their straw hats and going out to do that, what does it feel like for somebody to sit back and wait for people to get back and give them grain, right? Or give them whatever's been harvested. Clearly, something very different than they put on their straw hats and they go out too. They may not own the field, but God does. So they have every right to, to, to harvest the part of God's field that belongs to them. Isn't there also a sense that they're not humiliated sure. by, having, by you having it, to give it to them? Because mm -hmm. I've, I've read some rabbis who talk about payah right. as having so many applications in terms of other things that we do. Sure. In terms of leaving anonymously... And this is, you know, the basis of Maimonides, Rambam, understanding that the, the highest form of tzedakah is to give someone work. Next best is it the giver and the receiver are anonymous, and so on and so on and so on, because it's all about helping the poor in a way that protects their dignity, right? So that, you know, we have discretionary funds as clergy for that reason, right? So that we can help people, and the people that we're helping don't know who it came from. All right, so let's go to 20, Bert, you want to continue at 23, 23? <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. You shall not work at your occupations and you shall bring a gift to the Lord. 
All right, so the seventh month, so if we start in Pesach, in spring, the seventh month puts us in the fall, right? So on the first day of that month is a complete rest. This is a sacred occasion, Shabbaton, right, of complete rest. And how are we supposed to commemorate that day? Tru'ah, zichron tru'ah. With a tru'ah, with a loud blast, mikra kodesh, right? So that's Rosh Hashanah, right? That's Rosh Hashanah. So that's how it's described in Emor. Not exactly our understanding these days of Rosh Hashanah, right? Nothing here about the new year. It's not called Rosh Hashanah because it wasn't Rosh Hashanah. It was the seventh month. Um, what, what is this supposed to be? Why? The first day of the month, it's not even the full moon. It's the dark of the moon. And the seventh month, you boop and quit working. What's that about? Right? Interesting. Anything to do with the harvest? So there's no harvest yet, right? Usually you would assemble people with a loud blast. What else would you do with the... Loud blast. You gather people. What else? You might make an announcement. You might make an announcement. So blow the shofar so the people, or the trumpet, so the people stop and get ready to listen. Okay. It's communal. It's communal. Not, not individual. It's not individual. When you blow that thing, everybody's going to hear. A warning? Often, it's an alarm. It's a warning. Right? So, atom. <laughs> right? Listen up. Like, be ready for whatever. Could, you know, this is only a test. Right? But, boop, you hear that sound. Like, and you know you're supposed to listen for what comes next after that sound. Whether it's alarm, whether it's assembly, whether it's, we're not sure, but you know you're supposed to, like, pay attention. Something's coming. Either the king, the queen. So, something's about to happen that's big, unless it's being used as an instrument. And it was used as an instrument in the ancient world. Yes? Could it be that, uh, I'm just thinking, probably the Indians, I remember they, they had the, the, the bells to let them know what's going on, whether it's marriage, whether it's a whatever, whatever, it's a noon, it's time to rest or go to, it must, must have been a very specific type of growing to let them know. Sure, so what are we letting them know? Pay attention. To what? What's coming next. What, and what's coming next? Pay attention to what's coming next. What's coming next? Ha, 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 ha. Nicole, read it, 26. Uh, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Mark, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice self-denial, and you shall bring an offering by fire to Adonai. You shall do not, you shall do not work throughout the day, for it is a day of atonement on which expiation is made on your behalf before your God Adonai. Indeed, any person who does not practice self-denial throughout the day shall be cut off from kin. And whoever does any work throughout the day, I will cause that person to perish from among the people. Do not work whatever. It is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. 
It shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you shall practice self-denial. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall observe this, your Sabbath. All right. So, bum, bum, pay attention to what's coming next. What's coming next? So, first day of the seventh month, bum, bum, pay attention what's coming next. Nine days later, ten, tenth day is the Day of Atonement on which expiation shall be made for you. Why is that a big deal? Blow the show far. Why, why is this all in the seventh month? What's, what? Like, pay attention. Here comes the Day of Atonement. Seventh month. What? Why? All of a sudden are we atoning. When we talk about it in our current Jewish life, it's the new year. You want to start the new year off right. You want to make up for everything that happened last year. Do it differently this year. It makes, we can make sense out of that. How does it make any sense here? Well, as you pointed out earlier, the, the harvest hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen, which means the next agricultural cycle is about to start. And so, uh, you know, this continuing tension between are we a wandering people or are we an agricultural society? This is clearly on the side of the agricultural society where you want everything to be right with God so that your crops for the coming year are going to be Nice, nice. What's happening here is why the seventh month? Because right after Yom Kippur, this day of atonement business, why are we atoning? Because what's coming next is the harvest that will carry us through the dead season. What's coming next is the last harvest. If that doesn't go well, you don't survive the winter. The agricultural year is coming to a close. The agricultural cycle ends at Sukkot. Once Sukkot is done, that's it. You're grateful for everything you have gotten in this past year since Pesach, and you hope that the rains will be good, right, over the winter. Mm that the fields will be ready to bring forth fruit again at Pesach, or you starve. Quite literally, your children starve if you're farmers, right? So this is, this is the idea. This is the calendar. Is the, the first day of the seventh month is the pay attention, because here comes this big important day of clearing and cleaning anything up that's gone on so that you're ready for the final harvest. Literally and metaphorically, it's powerful, yes? If you think of the seasons of our lives, right, as we look at a final harvest. I mean, it's, it's a, it makes sense in here in a way that Rosh Hashanah being the new year and then 10 days later you atone doesn't exactly quite have the, you know, Okay, it's, you want to do that to start off a new year, but then why don't you do that first and then have Rosh Hashanah, right? This really makes a lot of, for me, existential sense, Richard. But then why, but then why continuing with that metaphor, why would you not then have a, a mirror festival uh, around the time of planting, right? It's sort of, you have this, you have this day of atonement now, mm -hmm. Because, among other things, you you want the last harvest to go well, so that you can make it through the dead time. Okay, dead time's over. Springtime's coming, and now you're going to be planting. 
but you still have that you but then you really have a vested interest in the crops coming up properly and having the right amount of sun and the right amount of rain or whatever the farmers need. So why wouldn't there be why wouldn't there be sort of two similar festivals? So let's let me let me rephrase. They do the the Day of Atonement so that when they come to that final harvest that hopefully is going to go really well. They've cleaned up all their Michigan so they can party and celebrate and be grateful and move into winter with everything cleaned up. Right. We, we don't count our chickens we're, we're clear on that. before with a hat. So we wouldn't have a, a planting festival because nothing's grown yet. Right. With that's, the that's festivals right. about celebrating right. what we get. Right. I, I understand. And so, giving back. But what, I, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, okay, so you have this as you party. And, and now six months is going to go by, during which a lot of stuff might have happened. Right. And, and now, it's, now it's time to, you know, get busy again and be a farmer. And so you're going to plant things, and you're going to hope that they, that they grow. Mm -hmm. Right? So what, what do you do then? Or is the, or is the good so. stuff... Or is the good stuff from six months ago supposed to carry over? Well, it's not. I don't think it's six months. I mean, it's the fall. Sukkot happens right. in late fall, and then harvest. So uh, right. So then, then you're busy planting and doing what you're doing, and then, in other words, they celebrate. I can't tell you as an anthropologist, we never ask why. Mm -hmm. You do not ask why as an anthropologist. Why did they not have a planting festival? What we say is okay. So ancient Israel seemed to be like their their festival came around the harvest and about gratitude and about sharing with the poor and with God and that that's how they did it why there isn't a planting one I don't know okay. well it, it strikes me there there's a big difference one is is being thankful and the other is asking for something correct so there wasn't a so, festival of asking right so you know, okay, so, so then the question becomes you know, are we a people who goes around asking for things or being thankful for things? Clearly, the latter, right? So ancient Israel was rooted in this idea of gratitude for the harvest. And it wasn't just ancient Israel. I mean, this was a common agricultural practice for people who were farmers. Can I um, hop in and say also that after the harvest, then we're praying for rain, and that's going to make all the difference as to if we have a harvest or not in the spring. So... That's a. That's another reason why we're. By the time spring rolls around, we've done all this prep work that hopefully, you know, you put a seed in and it will grow because of what we've done before. Yeah. Well, usually, don't you let the, the the earth kind of rest for the winter time, just like it's time of a. I mean. It, that's the natural cycle. Is it does rest in the winter? Nothing's going to grow. Right. That's what I'm saying. All you end up doing is preparing the earth. You labor, uh, and I don't know the word in English. Till and. Uh, till the, the and let it rest. And yes. Hope it rains. Ready, get ready for and hope it rains. Yeah. Exactly. All right. There's a comment here that in the, in the Hertz that um, this commemorates the creation of the universe. What does? It doesn't, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the seventh month. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't say. I hadn't heard that, and I don't know why. It doesn't say why. It, I would have to see what he's oh, okay. quoting because I don't. I, I don't see. It may be from somewhere else. You know what I mean? For where where it appears somewhere else. But here we don't get any indication right. of anything other than a prelude to Sukkot. 
All right, so what is this day of atonement? Expiation will be made for you. What are you supposed to do on this day? Relax. Deny yourself. Relax and practice self-denial. Ve'initem et nafshotechem. You shall press down your nefesh, yourself. This is the same word as what the Egyptians did to the Israelites in Egypt. This is the same word as what Sarah did to Hagar. Yes? Right. N- no, the, the verb to, to afflict. So that's what we're supposed to be doing to our nefesh, to ourself. That is all the Torah says about it. That's it. So all this other stuff, what do we do? We don't eat. <laughs> we don't eat, right? It's interesting. This is not listed in Torah as a fast day. So because once the temple's gone and, and the priests can't make expiation for the people anymore, what is Yom Kippur, right? right? Like, so don't work and press down yourself and atonement will be made for you. It, it doesn't have a lot to it when the priests are gone, right? When, you, when it's not going to be this huge ritual of of purification and, and sacrifice and blood being dashed and, right? So the rabbis are like, well, what are we left with? So the rabbis had to figure out how, how can it be meaningful for us? What, what does self-affliction mean anymore? Because that's all that we have left is the self-affliction part. So we have not eating, not drinking, not having sexual relations, not anointing, no anointing, um, and so th- and no wearing, you know, traditionally we don't wear leather. So the, these are some of the ways that we refrain from those activities that most connect us to vitality and to life as a way of interpreting and translating this idea of, of afflicting the self on that day. Um, and then expiation, of course, is now teshuva, right? That we make expiation through teshuva. Um. Could it be said that, um, you know, given that we live in a somewhat more more modern age where we have a, a larger view of what the self is or might be, uh, most of what we traditionally do on Yom Kippur is is sort of denial of our physical selves. That's that's the nefesh that's being denied. Mm-hmm. But we don't we don't, for example, you know, contemplate trying to reduce the ego, for example. In other words, when you, when, if you're practicing self-denial, mm-hmm. practicing, contemplating denial of the self, because I was reading something that Larry Kushner recently wrote. Mm-hmm. He has this book called On God, You Are Not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's and one of, there's a passage in there somewhere where we that we have so much everything we do and say tends to be manifestations of our own egos, and that manifestation of ego doesn't let God in. Right. So I think I think actually the liturgy is crafted in such a way to try to get at that. So when I think about the communal confession. It's not just confessing what we've done wrong. It's like 
there really is this sense, it's humbling to say out loud, I've lied, I've stolen, you know, I've committed falsehood, I've been stingy, I've been angry, I've been impatient, you know, like, to, to say all that out loud publicly, even though we're, when we're all doing it, so that's how we can bear it, um, but I think that is for the rabbis a way of talking about, and there's a lot written in the Midrash um, about humility. It's a very, they take it very seriously. Um, so we may not get at it as well in our English, you know, renderings of this stuff, but I think the whole act of a communal confession is about saying, I'm, I'm not all that I usually project myself to be, and really taking us to that place of, of you know, getting out of ego and going back into, like, truly humble understanding of who we are. Um, the rabbis have a beautiful teaching that if you take a shofar and you blow in the big end, what happens? Nothing. But if you go to the small end, if we're humble, you know, and then blow, that's when we get the big sound, right? So they talk a lot about, about humility and, um, and that that's what this process of teshuva should be about. I'm not sure we always do it so well, but... Um, the all right, comment, so... The comment you made about the verb being the same as mm -hmm. what the Egyptians did to mm -hmm. us, is there any sense here that we're like taking a day to go back and refill slavery? I think it's that, related, right, that we take a day to go, so go back about the and, stranger. and remember... We love the stranger and whatever, and that we... You're not, not free because you earned we it. Do it to us. Too. You're not free because you deserved it. Mm. Right? Do it to ourselves again. But for lots of things, boom, you are right back there. As are so many people in this world, still. All right. 33. Adam and I spoke to Moses saying, say to the Israelite people, on the 15th day of the seventh month, there shall be the Feast of Booths to Adonai to last seven days. The first day shall be a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Seven days you shall bring offerings by fire to Adonai. By the eighth day, you shall observe a sacred occasion and bring an offering by fire to Adonai. It is a solemn gathering you shall not work at your occupations. Those are the set times of Adonai that you shall celebrate as sacred occasions, bringing offerings by fire to Adonai, burnt offerings, meal offerings, sacrifices and libations on each day that is proper to it, apart from the Sabbath of Adonai, and apart from your gifts and from all your votive offerings and from all your free will offerings that you give to Adonai. So, where are you? I'm on, uh, I just finished 38. 38. Okay, keep going. Mark on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the field of your land, you shall observe the festival of Adonai to last seven days, a complete rest on the first day, and a complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you shall take the product, the product of hadar trees, branches of palm trees, bows of leafy greens, the willow of the brook, and you shall rejoice before your God, Adonai, seven days. 
You shall observe it as a festival of Adonai for seven days in the year. You shall observe it in the seventh month as a law for all time throughout the ages. You shall live in booths seven days. All citizens in Israel shall live in booths in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I, your God, Adonai. All right, so to your point, Bert. So if we have one day where we go back to this experience of what it was, Right to be disempowered, completely vulnerable, humble, then Sukkot, it makes perfect sense because what is Sukkot? The time you remember how you lived when I took you out of there. So we kind of, you have this layer laid over the agricultural festivals of our sacred history, right? Our mythic history gets laid over the seasons. Because there is tension between the farmers and those who are semi-nomadic pastoralists who don't identify with the harvest necessarily. It's, it's, it's not their big time, right? So, but you got to have both of those coming together in this new nation state that's trying to adopt practices that will meet the needs of all the people. you got to have the Yankees and Dixie, right? they got both got to have their rituals represented. So here we get... A laying on of the, of the um, mythic history of the people onto the fall harvest. So expiation has been made for the people. They are clen- the, the ritual space is cleansed. The public space that we share is cleansed of all of the ickiness of our sin. And so now everything is ready. The people and the space are ready to really celebrate the autumn Harvest Festival, the last of the year, the closing of the year. Uh, And so what are you going to do on that day? You're going to bring sacrifices, right? And it's going to be always on the full moon. If you got a lot of people traveling, there's not enough hotel space for everybody. You got to pitch your tent. Well, it's really awkward to pitch a tent where other people are doing the same kind of thing and you're running into each other. So always on the full moon, always where there's lots of light outside. Are these two different traditions? Because it seems like it repeats itself about the seven days. So it's very interesting that we see like this kind of literary uh, repetition. It describes it, and then there's an intermediate, and then it like, describes the same thing again. Often, it's two sources. So uh, the 15th day of the month right, is going to be the Feast of Booths, these Sukkot that we're supposed to live in. Right? It's Yantif on the first day, right? So it's a day of rest on the first day. Um, seven days there to bring offerings. This is a huge festival. This is a week-long party. It was rowdy. This party was raucous. There's writings later. <laughs> you're laughing at me. Later there are writings that say that um, the priests would take their old beat-up linen undergarments and they would make them into torches. And they would light them on fire, and they would do like, you know, you know, that, you know, like throw, like they would do all that kind of stuff. And they even, they even went down into the women's section. Even the women were included in this one. It was that big a festival. So, like, just, you could just imagine an entire, you know, country just having a big party, right? 
Um, <laughs> that's what it's like. But when you think, when I hear these kids talk about these things, I can't help but think, what is the other one? Burning Man? Or what is it? Burning Man, right? We still feel called to do this. We just don't do it anymore. But we're called, right? We're going on the family retreat for KI this weekend. I leave in a few hours, right? So we're still called to come together and celebrate, like have a good time together, eat and sit around the fire and tell stories and sing and do arts and crafts and do like, you know, chanting and do, like we, we still feel called and pulled to do that and it's a shame that we don't do it anymore. So this is what we're trying, lots of us in the business, like to make Rosh Hashanah into the bummers. We got Yom Kippur to the next one, right? But, um, but really, it's a, it's, we really need to find ways to, to answer this very primal human need to come together and celebrate that we're still here. <laughs> we made it another year, right? And then we're going to go into winter and, you know, rest. And, and then we'll come together again for another party in the spring. A lot of what? Birth. Birth? Oh, absolutely, 100%. 100%. Lots of births in spring. All right, so, um, so on the 15th day of the month, when you gather in all of the stuff, right, from your land, all the good stuff, um, you're going to observe a festival of seven days, complete rest on the eighth day. So the first day and the eighth day are, right, Yantif. Bookends. And on the first day, you will take the product of the Hadar tree, branches of palm tree, right? And the tradition is unopened palm fronds, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before God seven days. So from this we get what? The lulav. The lulav. So... The only, so the product of Hadar trees is, of course, the etrog, citron. Um, but, like, what, what are we supposed to do with them? I mean, today? It, well, what does it tell us we're supposed to do with them? Huh? It doesn't say it's wiggling. It does not say what to do with them. You shall take them. Hence, the rabbis say, the minute you hold the four species together, you fulfill the commandment. So the shaking is like a symbolic act, right? Um, but it's, uh, it's actually taking them that, that fulfills the commandment. Just taking them and putting them together, say the rabbis. That's why we start with the pitom down. We say the blessing. Psh, turn it up, you're done. And then we have this lovely God is everywhere shaking business. Um, all right. So you shall live in booths for seven days. All citizens in Israel shall live in booths in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Right? So you will observe a sacred reenactment of the time, Richard, that you were completely vulnerable, completely humble, completely nothing, dependent on me, God, for food, for shelter, for protection, you were nothing. You're still nothing without the force in this universe that's Yudhe Vavhe. You're toast without that. 
right? And so we leave our city dwelling. We leave the security of our homes. We leave all that we've built up with our ego, all that we've built up with our technical minds and our blueprints and our designs and our cement trucks. And we go back to right after we were delivered from oppression and remember it is all as vulnerable as a sukkah. All of it. Because you can live in your concrete house, but that doesn't protect you from stage four cancer. Don't forget. Go back out and get in touch with how fragile and fleeting it all is every year. So this is for us a reenactment that keeps us in touch every single season of the fall with how vulnerable we all are as the year comes to a close. But the, the, the text doesn't tell us why we're observing this sukkah, living this. It, it, this has to be uh, interpretation. Right, so what it does say is, well, why, I don't think it's even that far a stretch of an interpretation. It says, you're going to live in booths to remember and to teach other generations of you Israelites how you dwelt in booths in the desert. You had nothing. Your lives were in my hand. You built these great cities now, O oh Jerusalem. Go back out into the hut and don't forget from whence you come. Right? You're not as lofty as... Right? And it's not a, it's not a bad thing. Right? It's not... It's supposed to be a good thing. It's the fall, it's harvest, it's a party, and you go out and you live in temporary dwellings to remember, to quit being separate from each other, to quit hiding behind your walls and your screens, TV screens, computer screens, text screens, right? Come back outside. Come back to me, says God. Come hang out as a people in relationship to me. God remembers this time throughout, the character God remembers this throughout our texts, remembers the desert time with longing. When you followed me through the desert as newlyweds, it was our, it was our honeymoon. God's calling us back to the honeymoon spot when we had nothing. That tiny first apartment, honey, do you remember? The lights didn't even work all the time, right? It wasn't easy. It was a hard time. We didn't have a lot, but we had each other. And so it's a, it's a time of longing to be back together, says our tradition from the perspective of the divine. And that we relate differently when we're in huts together outside than when we're behind our city walls and gates and um, locks. All right. That's how the year's supposed to end. Wouldn't that be lovely? Right? I have a picture, one of my favorite pictures. I'm going to frame it someday. I, it's because it's just one of those that accidentally came out with like the composition being perfect. You know, everything was perfect. We, we made a little sukkah because Ellie was born on Sukkot. And we made a little, did I tell you this already? We made the sukkah and someone gave us a kit and we made the sukkah and I wanted it to be special for her. Her, her Jewish birthday is always on Sukkot and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to decorate it every year. And we made the sukkah and there's a chair and a chair, like deck chairs and then a little glass table. And there's Eliana, the little Eliana. She's like three, you know, four, standing between the chairs, looking up at the roof of the sukkah. She's in a parka, 
snow boots, and there's a hump of snow on the glass table. There's a hump of snow on each chair, and all this chach is covered in white. And I'm like, okay, that's it, we're done. Like, that's just wrong! Right? Like, there's like no... It was painful. It was not a happy time being in the sukkah with snow. Um, so, like, it works where it works. You know, like, it doesn't, it doesn't work in, in some places. That's, that's why I'm here. Um, but it, it's, like, just, just wrong. This is clearly designed, right, for a place where at Sukkot, it's lovely to be outside in general, right? And it's the last you're going to get to be outside before it gets miserable. Like, but imagine if we closed our year with that. In Duluth, that would mean, you know, August. But, you know. Since you brought up geography, I have actually a related question I've always wondered about. So many holidays, like when we talk about from starts at sundown, sundown to sunup. Traditionally, what happens when you get really far north and the sun is down for like six a months a year? I know, it's a real... And never come, or... Or up. Or when it's up for six months. Right, right. So we, uh, yeah. The, what is the... I don't know. I don't know how. Oh yes, for sure, hundred percent. But I don't know how the halacha. I don't know how the halacha deals with it. We'd have to look it up. Yeah, I don't know. But but yes, for sure they do. I mean, I don't know if it's about dividing, dividing the day into portion. Like, I'm not sure. We'd have to check. Isn't there something also that when you let go of all the daily or yearly activity, there's a sense of freedom when you mm-hmm. clean up. You throw out all the overburdening. There's a sense of lightness and freedom about it. And that's what Sukkot's supposed to be. Yeah. All the lightness and freedom of having done the hard, icky, grody work of yeah. right? Does that mean I have to digging. Clean my office? Yeah. Once a year. Once a year. Dang it. But also, well, no, the spring. You're supposed to come out of your life. That's right. Get all the puffed up stuff. Yeah. Out of your life. Now? And you go no, back to so eating the two times lechemoni, the bread of affliction and the bread of humility. All right, we're going to, I want to do one more thing to close with you. So look at 24 1. Some of you may have to turn more pages. 731 in the Hertz. 737 in the All right, so let's. That's at 2. 24 2, whatever. Or no, 24 1, by Deber Adonai, right? Yes. Right. All right, so somebody begin 24 1. Oh, it's not The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the Israelite people to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling lamps regularly. Aaron shall set them up in the tent meeting outside the curtain of the pack to burn from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It is a law for all time throughout the ages. He shall set up the lamps on the pure lampstand. Before the Lord to burn All right. So this is the menorah that was to be in the tabernacle, right, in the tent of meeting. And we know it as what? The Nair Tamid. Because the, the word used about it is, you shall light it, Tamid. Forever. So this is where the translation gets interesting. Forever, continuously. continuously, regularly, it seems that he that Aaron was to light it in the evening, and it was to burn till morning, and he was supposed to do that every night 
regularly. What continue continuously, right? Which is different from continually. Yes? He, periodically, he's supposed to do this ritual. It's not going to burn necessarily all the time, continuously, but the obligation is to light it continually, regularly, periodically, at night. Yes? And then tend it and do all the things that you need to do to it, and it's going to be pure olive oil. That get, and you'll notice the translation is regularly. But we do that, don't we? We have it burn continuously in our translation because it has become a symbol, which light is always a symbol in terrestrial human culture. You know, light is a symbol of good, true, right, divine, all those things. So for us too, as a people. And so we kind of have moved to the idea that it's continuously. So throughout the whole night. Always. That's always on. It's on all the time. No, totally. Always. So the This one. Yes. Right. But what I'm saying is we've taken tamid regularly, and now how do you translate the near tamid? Eternal life. Eternal. Always. Non-stop. And so that's what we have up there over the ark, because... We've moved to needing a symbol that's always on, right? That God's presence is always here. But it's interesting that that's not the menorah. That was not the intent. Um, although some say that, it was, that there was a light on the menorah that needed to be burning continuously. What did people do before electricity, though? What, what was the norm? Olive oil in ancient Israel. So... So you keep pouring oil in, the wick remained. You trim the wick and you put in more oil. And that's also wasn't just any oil. This is the purest of the pure olive oil. They would have used cheaper stuff. You know, there's lots of cheaper options that are like horrid to think about, but um, that they used in the ancient world. But when you wanted to talk about ritual, you got your best, which is pure olive oil. So, so. In the text talking about the fire on the altar, that was to be kept burning continuously, never to go out. So I think these two ideas have been brought together in our tradition, and now we have this idea of the ner tamid, right? Of the, um, the flame we have in the sanctuary burning continuously. So I want to I want to look with you um, at a piece which I just love. I think I'm going to use it at the high holidays. By Rabbi Richard Hirsch, looking at this idea. Rabbi Richard Hirsch is the director of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. So he's the rabbi's rabbi. He's the rabbi of the rabbis. Uh, us. He's the what director. The Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. He's our executive He's director. Rabbi. He's the rabbi, not for the school. Right. For the Whoa. for all three hundred and fifty yeah, Reconstructionist rabbis. All right. 
So let's look at Rabbi Richard Hirsch's piece. Somebody want to read? Many of the ritual objects associated with synagogue architecture derive from the descriptions of the Mishkan, or portable sanctuary, from the period of desert wanderings following the Exodus. The Aron, HaKodesh, Aron Kodesh, or Holy Ark, which houses the Torah scrolls, is an extension of the Ark in which the Israelites carried the Ten Commandments. The scroll coverings, including the breastplate plates and crowns, echo the ritual garb of the high priest. Go on. In this week's Torah portion, we find an almost offhand reference to another item found in the Mishkan, which has become a fixture in synagogues worldwide. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the Israelites to bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light to provide illumination continually, the Hadot near to Mead. The near to Mead eternal light is found in the synagogue suspended over the ark. It is commonly, although not exclusively, understood to represent the perpetual and persistent presence of God. As a consequence of this understanding, the near to Mead is kept lit at all times. But a close examination of the text suggests the difficulty in deriving our current eternal light from the description in Leviticus. So now read what we just read from our Parsha. Aaron shall arrange for the light from evening to morning before the Lord continually. Upon the purified candlestick shall he arrange the light before the Lord continually. This seems to suggest that the light within the Mishkan was kindled at sunset, kept burning through the night, and extinguished or allowed to expire at daybreak. The nuance of the Hebrew word to mead used here is accurately captured in the translation as continual rather than continuous. Continual refers to an event that reoccurs regularly, while continuous refers to something uninterrupted. Aaron's responsibility was to ensure that the near to meet of the Mishkan was kindled on a regular and repeated basis, but the light itself contrary to our synagogue near to Mead, was not interrupted. All right, let's see what Rabbi Hirsch is getting at, shall we? What is even more confusing is the use of an almost identical term to refer to the fire of the Mishkan that was, in fact, continuous. Fire shall be kept burning upon the sacrificial altar continuously, Eshtamid. It shall not go out. So apparently, there were two fires within the Mishkan system, the continuous altar fire and the continual lampstand. The distinction has a broader meaning for contemporary Jews than the merely semantic, the semantic nuances. The two types of fire represent the perhaps unbridged gulf between the real and the ideal forms of Jewish living. You shall speak of Torah when you are at home and when you are outside, when you lie down and when you rise up, is the way Deuteronomy puts it. The language suggests a common meaning of always, uninterrupted pursuit of Torah study and, by extension, of, living, of Jewish living. For a significant part of our tradition, this is the ideal way to live a Jewish life. 
undistracted by the wider world, totally focused on Judaism, devoted only to study, mitzvot, and the worship, worship of God. All right, so that clearly is the uninterrupted flame, right? The Deuteronomy is talking about on the road, at home, when you lie down, when you rise up, blah, 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 like constant, uninterrupted engagement with Jewish life and Jewish learning, right? All right, so somebody read starting at the reality. The reality, however, is that the vast majority of Jews live in a continual rather than a continuous Jewish life. At a regular interval, daily, weekly, monthly, perhaps only annually, they set aside time to focus on some aspect of Jewish observance and Jewish living. But the rest of their lives are occupied with living within the wider civilization. Judaism is an aspect of their lives, but not the permeating presence that the tradition often holds up as the ideal. The fact is, as anticipated in the Mishkan system, we need both kinds of Jews. We need those whose passion for Jewish living enables them to be on all the time, like the fire on the altar, whose every act is infused by Jewish values, surrounded by Jewish rituals, and lived out within a Jewish community. But we also need Jews who can, as it were, occasionally be off, like the candelabra, who venture out into the wider world to discover those aspects of the larger civilization that can infuse Judaism with a renewed vitality. Jewish tradition has evolved and changed and survived over the centuries, precisely because of the willingness to look beyond the boundaries of our community. All right, so clearly a reconstructionist rabbi writing. Yeah. <laughs> right? That the only way we have survived is our ability to evolve. That because we have both kinds of Jews, those who are doing Judaism and are on all the time, the flame that doesn't go out, and those who really are about being in the wider world, in the wider civilization, and yet regularly, even if it's only once a year, come back. If the, if the temple had never been destroyed, and if, the, and if the Israelites had always continued to live in Israel, sort of in this happy state, in this special relationship with God, would there have ever been a need for Judaism to evolve? No. Not necessarily, it, but it would have been in biblical how, Israelite. How would it look like today with the, the rest of the world being Biblical Israelite religion probably would have evolved into whatever it would have become. Right, but it wouldn't, but would, but I guess what I'm getting at is um, well, picture the, the, need to be, the, the need to have um, infusions of insight from the outside culture is only a consequence of the Jews themselves having been dispersed. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think the, the ancient saying. Israelites were very exposed to Canaanite right. ideas, and those are represented in the cult. Oh, okay. the, in other words, they were always exposed to neighboring civilizations, and those were, then you had the Israelite take on it. They would reconstruct those, but we've always right. been exposed just to other as, cultures. Just as, they, just as they encountered the Greeks. And exactly, the exactly. So it would have evolved into its own thing. It might look more like the Catholic Church. Had biblical, it, had the temple not been destroyed, it might have evolved into something that looks like the Catholic Church, right? right? With all of those rituals still in play, intact, relevant. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly would not have been rabbinic Judaism had the temple gone on. All right, so let's look at what Rabbi Hirsch says. 
To give the obvious contemporary example, we needed those Jews who discovered and explored the emerging issues of feminism to bring that revolutionary way of thinking from the general culture, culture into Jewish life. As the ancient Mishkan endorsed both types of tamid light, so should we as a community be able to embrace and include all Jews, those whose commitments are regular and reliable, and those whose devotion is daily and unwavering, under the heading of Klal Israel, the Jewish people. <laughs> what if we really, really understood that? What if everyone who came on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and only on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur understood that that's the kind of Jews they are and that we need them? What if there wasn't any guilt associated with it? What if it was like, oh, yay, everybody's here, which means this is the Tamid time, right? This is the Ner Tamid, the regular time. Good. It happens once a year. That's fantastic that once a year we're all doing Jewish. What if that was it? What if that was the only message Jews got when they came home? It was yay. So I'm going to use that, I think, this year from the Bima. They might a good enjoy themselves so much they'll start coming to Could happen. <laughs> it happened to y'all. So, right? Could happen. Shabbat shalom. A good Shabbos.